With Sean O'Callaghan's killer, Christopher Halliwell, safely behind bars, Sean's funeral was held on Monday the 18th of April. Thousands lined the streets of Swindon to pay tribute to the bright young woman whose life was cut so tragically short. This public outpouring of grief was covered by every national news outlet. Sean's mother, Elaine, could hardly believe her eyes when she saw the crowds of people who had gathered for her daughter. Because of the outpouring in Swindon for Sean, and there were sort of lots of people, work colleagues to do with the funeral, saying about paying their respects, that in the end we spoke to the funeral company and decided to take the funeral a certain route and that the local paper would publish that route so that we could keep the funeral to her very close friends and family. But people who knew Sean wider would be able to pay their respects as we went along the route for the funeral. That was, again, very surreal. At first, leaving the house, there weren't people, but as we got into Old Town, all of a sudden we could then see people lying in the streets. People were throwing flowers at the cars. I was in the car with Sean's father, and I remember saying, all this is for Sean. All all these people wanted to do this for Sean. Look at what our daughter, how all these lives she's touched. And on the dark day of his sister's funeral, for Sean's brother Liam, the crowds of people felt somehow uplifting. So that morning, I suppose, yeah, difficult seeing the coughing and, and, and also the flowers arranged. But yeah, the actual procession itself, seeing people actually lining the streets, because I suppose everything we had seen beforehand was all through the TV. So we'd seen people turning up to go on coaches, to go to Savannah Forest. We'd seen, you know, our own press statement. We'd seen the, uh, the lanterns, or I've seen that firsthand, but a lot of the family had only seen that through the TV. But to actually see firsthand people throwing flowers, reacting, made it more real as well. It was kind of like a feeling that Sean had had touched so many people's lives that they felt that it could have been the girl next door, or it could have been their daughter, or it could have been... Yeah, and I think that's why it especially moved people, and it was was just lovely to see people's um, uh, warmth, um, and it provided quite a lot of strength um, to the family as well, so... Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In June 2011, Detective Steve Fulcher left Wiltshire Police for a national role working with the Serious Crime Analysis Section, where he hoped he would be able to further investigate Halliwell and the other possible victims he'd hinted at in jail. One month later, Steve Fulcher was in Bristol Crown Court for the plea and case management hearing in Halliwell's case. Everyone involved in the case hoped Halliwell would plead guilty. After all, he had personally navigated an entire convoy of police to his two victims and admitted murdering them both. It was pretty persuasive evidence. On top of that, they found Halliwell's DNA on Sean's body, which was part of a strong evidential case. Nobody has defended this case. Nobody has been able to provide an answer to the question, which is, on what basis could you possibly defend this case? He took me and a full surveillance crew and a helicopter to two deposition sites and made verbal admissions that linked the physical evidence of those two bodies with the acts he'd committed. Now, what part of that is difficult to assimilate into a court case? Again, though, things did not go as Steve had hoped. Sensationally, Halliwell's barrister stood up and asked for Steve Fulcher's exclusion from the court. Here's what he said. I've asked for his exclusion because I have to lay before the court the gravest allegations concerning the SIO in this case, which will require external investigation. With the exclusion of the SIO, or Senior Investigating Officer, a pre-trial hearing was announced, known in the English system as a voir dire. This would be the opportunity for Halliwell's defence to make its allegations concerning Steve's conduct. What it boiled down to, Steve realised, was that rather than defend the case, Halliwell's defence would try to get it thrown out of court because of his procedural choices on the day of the arrest. The wheels of justice turned slowly. The hearing wouldn't take place until January 31st, 2012, it meant an agonising wait for the families and for Steve Fulcher. So, of course, from June until the voir dire, which was six, nearly seven months later, my life was riven with torment. Because you've got to bear in mind, I couldn't get legal advice myself. I asked for it time and time again. I wanted a lawyer to say, look, this is what I've done for these reasons. But the hierarchy in, in the police force declined that. Because of, I was a bound witness in the case, I couldn't speak as an SIO normally would with the prosecuting counsel, Ian Laurie. 
And so we're left with the nonsense of turning up in court seven months later with an uncertain line that I'm to take other than simply telling the truth. Whereas quite obviously it should have had legal advice put in there directly to me to say, well, actually, am I right or am I wrong in terms of what I did under PACE? Given the the fundamental law is far more significant than the Pleasing Criminal Evidence Act, which is the Human Rights Act, which is a universally applicable right to life attributable to Sean O'Callaghan. And you can't square that circle under these circumstances. So it was hell, is the short answer. That seven-month period was very, very dark indeed, because I, I knew what the issue was. And it was as if everybody else had... Uh, well, I don't think they actually understood what this issue was. They just weren't bright enough to understand where this case had to go. There's only one place it could go, because you've got a double murder. You can't envisage a British court releasing Halliwell, given that the fact of his guilt was unequivocal. That was never in contest. So there's only one place it can go, and that is to try to destroy me as an individual, which is exactly what happened. When the big day finally came around, Steve went to Bristol Crown Court as a bound witness, ready to give his version of events. One week had been booked for the proceedings, so he knew he was likely to have to testify for some time. Sean's family were there as well. Her mother Elaine describes how the family first learnt that the arrest of their daughter's killer might have been questionable. I recall there being a brief hearing in the July. Basically, it was to determine whether the um, confession could be admissible at trial in court. That was what the four days were about. And having a discussion in the side rooms, and I believe Steve was there, and Steve saying, alluding to the fact that there were going to be questions that had to be answered, but we were always reassured by the legal team that they had so much forensic evidence for Sean that it was just kind of something they had to get through. But really the first we started to realise that Halliwell had been refused to go to the police station, was taken to Barbary Castle, all that side of it, first we heard about it was in that four-day hearing. And I think it's safe to say we were all quite taken aback because um, we didn't know that had happened. We knew an interview had taken place, and a special interview, an urgent interview, but we didn't know under what conditions. We didn't know that had involved him being taken somewhere else and any breaches of any laws being broken, uh, cautions not being given and solicitors refused. We First, we found out about all of that was during that four-day hearing. It was hard for the family to witness the police officer who had found their daughter being grilled on the witness stand in court. I, I felt that the day and a half that he was on the stand, yeah, it was extremely difficult to watch him being grilled like that, yeah. It was. But at the same time, then finding out that cautions weren't used and he wasn't taken to a police station, um, wasn't given access to a solicitor, I could also see that that's questionable as well. So I, I can 
it's hard. It's a, it's a real difficult one because morally, I don't think there's any question over um, Steve doing what I think any family member would want an officer to do for for them and for their family. But at the same time, I could also understand the legal ramifications of it as well. They try. They were trying to establish whether, first of all, oppression had been used against Halliwell and also to establish if he received his legal rights to a solicitor and that he was cautioned correctly by police guidelines. Um, initially, before it, we were kind of led to believe that, you know, this is going to be a lot of league, almost sort of discouraged from going, I would say. But because we were like, we didn't understand what they were getting at. We felt that we had to go to try and understand what it was that was causing such a problem. And I think um, it's fair to say those people that went from the family, I, for myself, if I hadn't have gone to those four days, would have found that quite difficult hearing that secondhand. But being there for the four days has helped me understand exactly what went on, why there was the legal complexities attached to it. It was incredibly difficult. It probably took the same time again to get over it afterwards. And it was very difficult watching Steve up on the stand for a day and a half being grilled without breaks and things. It, it, it was very, very difficult. The defence team's main argument was that the confessions Halliwell had made on the day of his arrest were obtained outside the rules. They did not comply with the PACE guidelines. As a consequence, Halliwell's barrister argued they were not admissible evidence in court. He grilled Steve over two days about his actions. I always knew that was going to happen. I was cross-examined by one of the top QCs in the country for two days. In front of Halliwell? In front of Halliwell, yeah. And Richard Latham, you know, I hold him in a great deal of respect because he's actually very good at what he does. <laughs> when you're being cross-examined by a top-quality QC, I defy anybody to not walk into certain traps because that's the whole point of the adversarial system. The adversarial system that we've adopted in this country is exactly that. It's not about... I mean, these are the exact words that I recall Richard Latham saying to me. He said, officer, this isn't about truth and justice. This isn't about guilt or innocence. This is about admissibility of evidence. Now, for a voir dire, a pretrial review of this nature, that's, that's technically correct. But are you telling me that a high court judge presiding over a court case, hearing the detail of this information, which is irrefutably the case, that this individual, Christopher Halliwell, has murdered at least two women, that they're not interested in truth and justice, they're not interested in guilt or innocence. So this was never a, the, the idea you could extract those notions from a meaningful court process is, in my view, utterly ridiculous. In a nutshell, these are the issues Latham focused on. First, there was the fact Steve had breached pace on multiple accounts, ignoring Halliwell's requests to be given a solicitor and to be taken back to a police station, and choosing not to properly caution him. Secondly, he argued that in essence Steve's behaviour amounted to a form of coercion, and it was the coercion that had induced the confessions. In response, 
Steve argued that his actions were PACE compliant given the exceptional circumstances he faced. First, the issue of breaching PACE. This question is really the heart of this case and of everything that happened afterwards. I never lied. I explained to the court and courts that followed exactly what I did, why I did it, the imperative that I was faced with. The Police and Criminal Evidence Act codes of practice requires a police officer on making an arrest to take that individual into custody to provide a lawyer and to only question under caution. Fully aware of that. However, there's a provision expressly for this set of circumstances under Section 11.1 where there's immediate threat to life and urgent provisions are made to prevent loss of life, people suffering further criminal effects, or the loss of evidence pertaining to a crime. I applied that, Section 11.1, quite properly. So as far as Becky is concerned, Section 11.1 of PACE applies as well because it provides for the recovery of evidence that would otherwise be lost. That's what it says. You can conduct an urgent interview in order to recover evidence that would otherwise be lost. Well, the body of a victim is good evidence. And if I don't gather it, it will be lost. She would never have been found. Neither of them could ever have been found, but for this intervention in these terms. Well, the notion that I should have rejected his voluntary confession pertaining to Becky when he asked, asked me at um, Uffington, did I want another one? Uh, which has been made in all seriousness by parties who really haven't thought this through. That notion is, is completely ridiculous. Why have we seriously got into the position in which detectives reject voluntary confessions? Seriously. Now, the, the suggestion in the Cox hearing was that at such time as he said, do you want another one? I should have placed him under arrest on suspicion of murder, cautioned him, taken him to the police station, booked him in, and then if he wanted to continue his confession once he'd had access to legal advice, ask him the same question. So the notion that a detective, a senior detective leading a huge team on such an important issue, life and death issues, would seriously, at the point at which an individual fully contrite, voluntarily, confesses to a second murder would turn it down is simply staggering, is staggering to me. There's so much to talk about here, and we will explore these issues in more detail in later episodes. One of the points Latham pressed Steve on was whether he really thought Sham was alive when he was questioning Halliwell. Since Steve's argument was that he was applying the Section 11 exemptions to Pace on the basis that he was searching for a live kidnap victim, the point in time at which he knew Sham was dead was very relevant. At what point do I give up? At what point do I accept that in all probability Sean is dead? Now you do hear a lot occasional stories, don't you, of abductees being held for some considerable time, but I know the statistics are that the average life expectancy of a kidnapped party where there's um, the intention of murder is measured in hours. But if you make the assumption that the statistics are universally applicable, of course everybody will die. That will necessarily be the case. What did I know at that particular point in time? Well, I knew that we nobody had seen who I had contact with Sean since three o'clock on the Saturday morning, and it's now Thursday. So that if she was bound and gagged somewhere, she would be suffering extreme dehydration, 
would presumably not have eaten or drunk unless the missing gaps in the surveillance that had been conducted had allowed Halliwell to return to her, if that had happened. But as I explained to the court, if there was a 10% chance of Sean still being alive, I had to take that chance. If there was a 1% chance of Sean being alive, I had to take that chance. And if there was a 0.1% chance, similarly, I didn't know she was dead. I feared she was dead. I might even have believed she was dead, but I didn't know she was dead until I found Sean, checked for vital signs, breathing, pulse. If she was still alive and I'd walked away, my offence would have been grotesque and I wouldn't expect any public sympathy or any interest in the course of action that I'd adopted. Assuming somebody is dead necessarily means they will be dead because if she's bound and gagged somewhere, praying and hoping that the cavalry are coming, well, I'm the cavalry. There is no other cavalry. What I don't do isn't going to be done by somebody else. And outside of court, that logic is hard to argue with. But inside the court, the second major issue of the hearing was whether Halliwell had been oppressed into making his confession. Essentially, whether he only confessed because of the circumstances Steve created. There was a lot of focus here on the fact that Steve referenced the Joanna Yates murder case. If you remember from episode 4, this was one of Steve's conversational gambits at Barbary Castle. He told Halliwell that he would be vilified in the press. I wasn't oppressive, not in the least. In fact, just the reverse. But I wouldn't expect any sympathy if I'd hung him over a motorway bridge as you described that people did in times past. I don't condone that behaviour at all. It's outrageous and exactly why we have pace. There's no circumstance under which that is conscionable or acceptable at all. Because it never occurred to me or crossed my mind or even the concept isn't in my nature to step over a line such as you describe. The line of oppression or physical assault. Those are criminal acts. If I'd committed those criminal acts, I would expect to be prosecuted for them. But I didn't. And this is why that pretrial hearing, not taking the key evidence, which is the evidence of the one witness, the independent witness that was with me and Halliwell at these exchanges, Debbie Peach, when it comes to considering the issue of oppression, she can answer that question. I wasn't oppressive, not in the least. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Debbie Peach wasn't asked to give evidence at the pre-trial hearing. What did she think when she heard Steve had been accused of oppression? Just disbelief, really, because as someone who was witness to those events, oppression wouldn't have worked. Threats or oppression wouldn't have worked in that circumstance. Halliwell was very self-possessed. He was he was totally controlled. He was um, he was not a frightened person at all. He knew exactly what was going on, and to have threatened Halliwell or used any kind of strong reaction against him to elicit any information in that kind of way just wouldn't have worked. It would have immediately put the shutters up, is, is my opinion, having been witness to that, to that event. From my point of view, standing very close to both of them, and whilst I couldn't hear everything that was being said, they both seemed very in control. This wasn't an emotional outburst or outpourings. They were very calm, both of them. This was a very evenly spoken conversation between the pair of them. And I couldn't see any evidence of oppressive conduct. It seemed like common sense that Debbie Peach be asked to give evidence at this stage. But common sense and the law don't always work hand in hand. I wasn't asked to give evidence at the pre-trial hearing. Uh, it would have been nice to have been asked to give evidence because it seemed to all hang on um, the admissibility of the confession evidence and um, whether or not Steve Fulcher was oppressive. And I'd have been able to say that Steve Fulcher wasn't oppressive. And I think, had he been oppressive, Halliwell himself would have made the point, and perhaps through his own solicitor, there would have been a very quick and early charge of oppressive conduct, but that never came, simply because it was a very well-conducted, evenly-paced talk between two individuals to elicit some information. At the end of the day, judges are there to judge. Had Steve's actions made it impossible for a jury to know of Halliwell's confession? It was for Justice Cox to weigh up and decide at her discretion. As Steve points out, there's a world of difference between permissibility and admissibility. There's been a fundamental error throughout this process, which is that the great and the good senior police officers, the IPCC and others, have conflated permissibility with admissibility. Now, what I did is permissible under Section 11 of PACE. Whether it's admissible is a matter for a judge presiding over the circumstances. Breaching Code C of PACE does not in and of itself automatically render confessions inadmissible. It doesn't. But it will be a factor that a judge will consider as to whether or not they should admit that evidence. In the end, Justice Cox found in effect against Steve. She ruled that he had been oppressive. I'll quote the ruling here for clarity. For the reasons given in my ruling and in respect of section 76, I do not accept the submission that what happened in this case had no impact upon this defendant or caused him no disadvantage. 
These were indeed significant and substantial breaches of the codes, in circumstances deliberately designed to persuade the defendant to speak. Further questions were asked, all without caution, during the journey to the location of Miss O'Callaghan's body. Admissibility of this evidence would have such an adverse effect on the fairness of the proceedings that it ought not to be admitted. This whole series of events began with the deliberate decision by a senior officer to breach the codes, and it developed into circumstances where I consider there may have been oppression. Once the defendant had directed Detective Superintendent Fulcher to the place where Ms O'Callaghan could be located, the relevant risk had been averted, and the qualifying criteria for an urgent interview under C 11.1 no longer existed. There is no doubt on the evidence that C 11.1 was no longer engaged. As soon as he began to talk about another offence, it is clear that he should have been cautioned. There should have been no further discussions about it, and the defendant should have been taken to the police station. For these reasons, and in the exercise of my discretion under section 78, admission of the evidence relating to the confession concerning Ms Godden Edwards and to the location of her body, and the circumstances in which they arose, would have such an adverse effect on the fairness of these proceedings that they ought not to be admitted. It was a devastating judgement. It meant the confession evidence, everything Halliwell had told Steve, would never be relayed to a jury. It gave Halliwell a chance of getting away with murder. And for Debbie Peach, who was there the whole time, yet not asked to give evidence to that effect. The decision was unbelievable. So when the ruling came through that um, the confession evidence was inadmissible, um, I couldn't believe it. Journalist Steve Brody found it hard to fathom too, but something even worse was set in motion. Once it was ruled that Steve Fulcher had erred, it seemed to Brody that the police force abandoned him. His lawyer argued in front of Mrs Justice Cox that these charges should be dropped, that his client should walk. Inconceivable, quite inconceivable. In fact, I remember talking to uh, senior police officers and indeed judges who I know, uh, this was going to happen and didn't even have a blink of this happening. When eventually she decided that the charges against Becky Godden Edwards were to be dropped, there was utter disbelief, in fact consternation, amongst families, quite senior journalists and senior police officers that this decision had been reached. It could be argued that in front of another judge, you might have reached a different decision. But that was it, and that was the end, the beginning of the end of the love affair between Wiltshire Police and Steve Fulcher. Their star man had fouled up uh, and they abandoned him. But during this dark time for Steve Fulcher, he found support in the families. For him, it meant that whatever was decided in court, they knew his actions had found their daughters. And that was what it was always about. I could see the 
horror of what had occurred here. When I came out of that um, meeting, I met um, Elaine O'Callaghan in the uh, foyer. And we never said anything, she just hugged me. <laughs> I was um, obviously distraught. But, but that meant more to me than probably anything else. Elaine's support and the family was terribly important. You know, the point I'd make is that there are only four types of evidence. Every evidential case, every criminal case is presented on the basis of four types of evidence. Forensic evidence, passive data, witness evidence, and confession evidence. And it's confession evidence that no longer really exists given the nature of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act and the exercise of the right to silence. Now, in this case, we didn't have any witnesses directly to Shan's abduction. We simply had her walking into Halliwell's headlights, you'll recall. Passive data, he'd turned all his machines off. We had no passive data. And, and the forensic evidence, of course, which we gathered by surveilling him, didn't actually directly link him to uh, Sean. He's a good quality criminal. He doesn't leave forensic evidence around. It's only because we were so quickly on the back of him that he left it on Sean O'Callaghan. His usual practice would be to bury the bodies, strip them and so on. Very aware of passive data, very aware of witnesses. He asked me, how did he catch me? Was it the gamekeeper at Ramsbury? So this, this interpersonal connection, this notion of being able to communicate with somebody, get inside their head, examine their inner motives, is crucial to this case, but it's also a unique skill or moment in time. But that wasn't the end. The defence went further still applying for the entire proceedings against Halliwell to be stayed as an abusive process. The argument was essentially this. In his press conference on the day of the arrest, Steve had put into the public domain the fact that Halliwell had confessed to two murders and taken him to two bodies. These details had been covered extensively by the media and were well known, and yet the judge had just ruled that they were inadmissible in court. So Halliwell's defence argued that, as a consequence, Halliwell could no longer receive a fair trial. Steve had done a press conference saying, mentioning Halliwell by name and that Halliwell had taken him to where Sean and where Becky were found. And because obviously he'd done that, ahead of any trial, that then risked both cases on the grounds of how could he have a fair trial when um, it had gone out in the public domain that he had confessed and taken him to where both victims were later found. Steve himself found it hard to understand the logic. I've got to say this is without question the silliest aspect of this entire case. What I said in that press conference is verbatim in the gold policy book. And there are only five entries in the gold policy book, and that's one of them. So to be criticized for something that is clearly sanctioned by gold is a nonsense. That's the first thing. Steve's talking about the gold group, a norm of UK police investigations whereby the gold command level provides strategic oversight. In this case, gold refers to a handful of senior officers at Wiltshire Police whose job was to oversee Steve's strategy for the investigation. Secondly, the purpose of 
talking to the public or talking to the media is to inform the public. And that used to be, until Leveson, a primary duty and responsibility of the police because the police serve the public. You can only serve people if you communicate with them. That used to be the relationship. It's completely changed and people don't realise that. So what I told them was entirely accurate. A 47-year-old man from Swindon has been arrested on suspicion of two murders. Fact. Where it became problematic was once Latham managed to persuade Mrs Justice Cox to disallow the evidence pertaining to Becky, suddenly that statement ceases to be true. It's, not, it's, it's still true, but he then claims it's prejudicial. So what you're saying is, I've got to, at that moment in time, consider what will or won't be admissible, what evidence will or won't be obtained in the intervening period, and predict what a judge will or won't allow to be admissible. That whole aspect is utterly nonsensical, because what you're saying is the public had better not be told anything at any point. Eventually, the judge dismissed the application, but moved the trial to Preston as a safeguard against the defence's objections. It still made things harder for the family. Sean's mum, Elaine, explains. The trial would continue, but in Preston, out of the local area, because she was satisfied that that was all that we needed to do at that time. I didn't overly lose faith in because Halliwell was already behind bars and had confessed, even though it was inadmissible, but obviously the judge knew that. I didn't have any doubt that she would just declare an unfair trial and he would walk free. I never thought for a second that would happen. But it still didn't mean that that caused a great deal of concern that potentially that could have happened. For Sean's brother, Liam, it was tough to see Steve Fulcher put through the ringer, given everything he'd done. The things that I sort of struggled with was the fact that Fulcher wasn't given a little bit more respect as a senior officer. You know, the chance to maybe go for a break, get a glass of water, compose himself, come back to the stand. It almost felt like he was on trial. The whole reason we were there was losing sight. The reason we're there is because Christopher Halliwell had taken the life of, of, of my sister. And it was quite difficult to go through those four days and just basically hear a guy that I respected who got the result arrested, the right, seems like the right guy, be put under intense scrutiny like that. But also not be given the, the respect during the court hearing to take the breaks and just sort of hammering home certain points to him continuously was difficult to witness. In the judge's summing up, she did not find that Steve Fulcher acted in bad faith. I'll quote from the ruling at length. Nor am I satisfied that there was bad faith on the part of Detective Superintendent Fulcher. He frankly and unapologetically gave his reasons for acting as he did and expressed robust views in evidence in an effort to explain and justify the course he took and the reasons for it. Further, his evidence that his handling of the media was all done under the general supervision of the Gold Group was unchallenged. It is clear that this officer had authority to conduct these press conferences, 
and to issue the various press releases, and that position did not change. I take into account my findings as to the conduct of this officer in my earlier ruling. I accept that he was then annoyed and frustrated when the defendant stayed silent in interview under caution, as he was entitled to, on the advice of his solicitor. In briefing the media as he did, Detective Superintendent Fulcher was plainly aware of what he was doing, but I find on the evidence that he genuinely took the view, misguided as it was, that his conduct was appropriate and justified at the time. I consider that this was a serious error of judgement on his part, but I am not satisfied that he was acting in bad faith, or that there was otherwise serious fault on the part of the prosecution such as to render this defendant's trial an affront to the public conscience, and to merit a stay of these proceedings on that ground alone. I do not consider that this officer's misjudgment, serious as it was, is properly to be categorised as an assault on the integrity of the criminal justice system. During the hearing, Halliwell's defence QC, Richard Latham, had also gone out of his way to clear Steve of any suspicions about the propriety of his conduct that his line of questioning could have generated. When Steve's former boss, Chief Constable Pat Geenty, took the stand, Latham quoted Steve's testimony that Sean's life was more important than Pace. He then asked Geenty, Morally, one can't criticise that statement, can one? Ginty said, no. Latham went on to say this. Mr Ginty, I am not talking about any officer being in any way disciplined for what he has done. Ginty responds, no, nor am I. I think the decision was a gutsy decision. To which Latham agrees. Ginty goes on to say that, I'd like to think I'd make a similar decision in his circumstances. Latham responds, That's why I emphasise that there's no question here of complaining on a disciplinary basis of anything that he did. That is not what I am talking about. Steve felt they should appeal the ruling but his view was not shared by the Crown Prosecution Service. They decided not to appeal. The immediate consequence was that the killing of Becky Godden Edwards was dropped from the indictment. Without the confession evidence, it was felt the case against Halliwell was too weak to prosecute. They were going to press ahead with prosecuting him for the murder of Sean O'Callaghan, but not Becky. Needless to say, Becky's mum Karen was shocked. The ruling was beyond belief. I was just soul destroyed. I thought, my daughter, my daughter is a nothing? This barrister has argued against Steve Fulcher's actions to try and get Halliwell either a reduced sentence or it thrown out of court completely to let him walk away free to murder again. I, I was just mortified. And our barrister had actually told us that about 10 minutes before I went in to hear it from the judge. 
we heard that morning, 10 minutes before. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. My head had gone into a total spin. I remember having a panic attack, trying to control myself, trying not to make a show of myself. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I felt that the tables had turned. And I, yes, Halliwell was the criminal, not Steve Fulcher. They were now treating Steve Fulcher. What he'd done, they're saying, was wrong. What was wrong about bringing Sean home? What was wrong about bringing Becky home? What was wrong in getting a confession from a, a murderer? What was wrong with that? What's wrong with what he did? This was not how Becky's father, John Godden, saw things. He took the view that Steve's actions had cost his daughter justice and lodged a formal complaint with Wiltshire Police Force. Despite the fact that their own chief constable had stated in court that Steve's conduct didn't merit disciplinary action, the Wiltshire Force decided to refer the complaint straight to the Independent Police Complaints Commission meaning Steve would now face an external investigation. Journalist Steve Brody watched this play out. And that's what the IPCC do. They investigate complaints made about police officers. And the person who brought it to their uh, attention was in fact John Godden, Becky Godden's um, father. He blamed both Steve Fulcher and Wiltshire Police for the fact that Halliwell walked, as it were, on the murder of his daughter. The mother didn't, and the rest of the family didn't. They all, to a man and a woman, supported Steve Fortune, with the exception of John Godden, uh, who blamed the police force and uh, Steve Fortune. Becky's mother, Karen, was shocked at this turn of events. Then we find out, I remember the phone call. It was from the IPCC. I was sat at my mum's at the time, and they said that a complaint had been brought against Steve Fulcher for his conduct towards the arrest and his behaviour and it was his fault that the case had been thrown out of court and that had been brought by my ex-husband. I was... I, I couldn't believe it. Shortly afterwards, Steve Fulcher was sacked from his national role and returned to Wiltshire Police where he was given a back office job and felt like a pariah. One month later, he was suspended from duty and he sank into anxiety and depression. Then, in October 2012, came a redemptive moment. On the next episode of The Detective's Dilemma. I said, that man brought my daughter home. It had very emotive language in it, as if it was designed to shock. I think our justice system has gone absolutely berserk. <laughs>